Imagine doing hard work every day of your life, backbreaking labor, straining your mind, pushing your limits, giving up comforts in order to do something you thought was important. And at the end of your life, you realize none of your work made any difference at all. It accomplished nothing. You know, one of the great secrets of successful people, which is not really a secret, it's, it's written in almost every book about, you know, how to be successful, how to achieve. One of these secrets is that successful people don't just work hard. They do the right things. They have the right priorities. They understand what is most important. It's possible to do a lot of things to be incredibly productive in your life, but to actually achieve nothing because you're productive in the wrong things. It's possible to accomplish everything and have it make no difference. And so we should be obsessed with asking the question of what matters the most. What matters the most? What is the most important thing? I don't want in my life to spend all my time focusing on third or fourth tier things of importance. I want to know what is the most central thing and to live my life for that. John Piper said very famously, he said, you don't have to know a lot of things in your life to make a lasting difference in the world. But you do have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. I love that quote. I think of it so often. Right? You don't have to know a lot, but do you know the most important thing? Well, Psalm 27 shows us what that one thing is that matters most above everything else. And so it's this breath of fresh air into our world that is cluttered with so many trivial pointless, insignificant distractions. In Psalms 23 to 30, we see that God's house has been in view, right? From Psalm 23, which ends by speaking of dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, um, up to the very end with Psalm 30, where it's a psalm about the the temple. It's for the temple or, or about the house of God. And this subset within 26 to 28 especially there's this focus even more so on the house of God. Psalm 26, as we saw, is this approach to the house of God. And Psalm 27 here, we're going to see that David finds refuge from his enemies in God's house. And then in Psalm 28, he's praying in the house of God and receiving an answer. So we're going to look at this, this, this text. Our outline, it starts and ends with confidence in God. So that the end caps of this psalm are confidence in God. And then in between, we see that the psalmist seeking the house of God, seeking the face of God, and seeking the security of God. Let's start off with verses one through three, which are confidence in God. Confidence in God. Look at verse one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We're going we're gonna to see in a few verses here what the most important thing is for David. But here we start off by seeing David's fearlessness. When you know what's most important, you don't have to be afraid, right? Everything else pales in comparison. If you've ever met someone who's fearless, you, you probably know they're either a crazy person or they, they must have some knowledge that you and I don't have if we're afraid, right? A a fearless person is someone who is confident in something, has some sort of inside information. And here David reveals his inside information, a reason to be fearless, that he has God as his light. Light is that, obviously, which dispels the darkness. Throughout Scripture, it's associated with goodness. And when we can't see, 
we are vulnerable. In the dark, um, we don't have a way to fix that in and of ourselves. We need some source of light from outside to bring clarity, to, to reveal the truth. And so God is that light, spiritually speaking. He brings revelation of reality. He brings truth. He helps us to see accurately. So God is his light and his salvation. Salvation speaks of the deliverance that God can bring and that God alone can bring. It, it can speak of eternal salvation. That's how we often use it as Christians. We see it used that way often in, in the New Testament. But it can also just speak of some sort of deliverance from harm or from danger. So God is his salvation, the one who rescues him. And then he changes the metaphor to say God is his stronghold. A stronghold is a place of refuge in military conflict. God is the stronghold, the place where David can run to when everything else fails. God is all of this and more. And so he repeats it twice, right? Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? You know, I was talking with my kids last night about fear. We were reading um, the Bible before bed. And, you know, my youngest, he doesn't really understand what's happening. He's two. But, but my four-year-old and my six-year-old, they understand more. And we were talking about how Hezekiah wasn't afraid. And the story in um, Second Kings, right? It's also in Chronicles and in Isaiah, but where Hezekiah is faced with these threats from Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And he's, he's hearing about how they're going to starve him out and besiege, and there's this huge army. And Hezekiah, bolstered by Isaiah's word, chooses not to fear and instead to believe in God. And so we were talking about this, right? And I, they're so little, but they understand the idea of bad guys, right? There's bad people out there who will harm. And I asked them, you know, what if a bad guy comes up to you in the dark? How would you feel? And they said, oh, we'd be afraid, you know, we'd be terrified, whatever. And I said, well, what if daddy was in front of you between you and the bad guy? And they said, oh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be afraid at all, right? We, we wouldn't be afraid because if daddy was there. And of course, they don't understand that I have no self-defense capacity, right? Outside of three years of Taekwondo, which makes me pretty fierce. But, but really, I'm not necessarily a great fighter, but they just know I'm big and I'm scary. And so if I'm there, they have help. Well, David, in a much greater way, he understands the same thing. He's saying, I don't care what's against me if I have God on my side. It's a simple truth, but it's, it's an important truth. One that we should remember, when God is with us, who can be against us? Verse 2, he says, When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. So he's faced by his enemies who are depicted as wild, savage animals, as uh, cannibals, really. This is probably, you know, not literal, but it's speaking to how savage they are, that they want to eat him, eat his flesh. But in David's case, he knows that for those seeking to destroy him, they're not going to be able to hurt him. It's actually them. It's they who will fall. And David's confident in that, that God's going to turn around their schemes against them and that they're going to suffer the consequences. He's not scared because he has a God of justice on his side. Verse 3 says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. So the enemies are depicted as an army here. And this is as bad as it gets. You're outnumbered. You're outclassed. This actually happened to David a few times. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 23, where Saul's army is coming against David. So when you're facing an army that's so much stronger, you can't depend on yourself. 
It also reminds me of Exodus chapter 14 and the Exodus story where Israel, without weapons, without military training, is against the, the sea and Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them. They have It's impossible. There's no way they can win that battle. But David, in this situation, refuses to be in fear. He refuses to be conquered by fear. He says, I'm going to be confident. There's a word confident. It literally means trusting. It speaks to ongoing trust, a, a reality of trust in David's life. And so he says, I'm going to be confident. I'm going to be trusting in God. Now let's look at the next section, verses 4 to 6. Verses 4 to 6. So he started with confidence, and now he is seeking the house of God. So he begins to use this verb again and again of seeking. And first, what he's seeking is God's house. Instead of giving in to fear, David begins to set his mind on the most important thing. Listen to this verse, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I love this. Commentators point out that this is one of the most single-minded statements of purpose in the entire Old Testament. This is He's so focused. He's so single-minded. David knows the one thing that matters, the one thing he's going to seek after above everything else. And what is it? Well, this one thing is, is really actually three things that are mentioned here. He's going to dwell, he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord. He wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and he wants to inquire in his temple. So there's three things, but really they're all one thing. They all have to do with being in the presence of God. That's what it's about. To be in the presence of God is to live with him. It's to behold him, to see him in his beauty for who he is, to be captured, to be gripped by the, the glory of God. And it's to be able to ask him for what you need. If you live with God, if you're in his presence, then God's going to supply everything that you need, right? Logically speaking. So these three things are really one thing that can't be separated. David wants to know God and to dwell with him. He understands that's the one thing that matters above everything else. Is, is this your central aim in everything you do? Do you want to see God? Do you want to know him better? Do you spend time amazed at who God is in awe of his love for you? Maybe you're overwhelmed right now. What you need to do is just try to focus on one thing. Just on one thing. Don't try to fix every problem. Don't try to carry the weight of the world. You can't do it. But you can focus on God himself. The one who is able to solve all of these problems. The one who's already dealt with our biggest problems. Everything else is small in comparison for him. Don't define your day based upon whether you've accomplished all the things on your checklist, whether you've done everything that you need to do. Instead, define your day based on this. Did I praise God today? Did I, did I get to know God a little better today? Did I grow in my trust for him today? If you can end your day by saying those things, then you've done the one thing that matters above everything else. And everything else will fall into place if you do this one thing. If you can do just that one thing, you'll have done what matters. Because so many people do everything right, and it all adds up to nothing. 
because they don't know the God of the universe. So do that one thing. Don't let that be you. Focus on him. Keep him before you. Understand like David did, that there's one thing that you should ask and seek for above everything else. So David is seeking the house of God, and we see a, a bunch of synonyms for the house of God here. We see his temple being mentioned, right? So the house of the Lord in verse 4, the temple of the Lord in verse 4, and then look at verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So there's more synonyms of the temple of God. There's the, the shelter of God, the tent of God. And there's these three actions of God in response to David's focus on seeking God's house. And they're all about protecting David, right? Hiding him, concealing him, and lifting him high. I love especially that, that phrasing of lifting me high upon a rock. The idea is God is bringing him out of danger and setting him on higher ground above his enemies where he's untouchable. He can't be hurt. He's safe. And this mention of the rock is reminiscent of David's hiding places from his days in the desert, right? In the Judean wilderness, God has lifted up and placed him on that rock of safety. Verse six, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So his head is lifted up. We saw this in, in uh, chapter 24, in Psalm 24, speaks to vindication, to having hope, to having assurance, David knows his cause is going to be shown to be right, and he's rescued, right? He understands that he will be vindicated, and his response, again, is to praise God, because that's the response we have to have when God rescues us, to turn and praise him. So he goes from seeking the house of God to seeking the face of God. Verses 7 to 10, seeking the face of God is the next section. Verse 7, he says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. He's, he's seeking God's face. And this is really just building on the imagery of seeking God's house. So there's a different metaphor here, but it's the same reality. The idea here is that he wants to know God better. He wants to grow in his relationship with him. And true relationship is defined by seeing someone face to face, by being in that kind of intimate relationship. Uh, we know from scripture, if a sinful person sees God face to face in his full glory, that he'll be destroyed. So I don't think David's speaking of that right here, but he's speaking of wanting to know God better, having a deeper understanding of God. And so he in turn pleads with God not to hide his face from him. Look at verse 9. Hide your face, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. He says, hide not your face from me. We've seen this before, but you can only know God if he allows himself to be known. Right? Even in human relationships, there has to be a disclosure of the other person, person for there to be a true friendship. Right, No friendship can be one-sided. Just because you decide you want to know someone doesn't mean you have a relationship. It's two-sided. There has to be a willingness to enter into that relationship. And this is infinitely more true of God, who is above us, who is greater than us. We're not owed anything by God. 
He doesn't need to let us know him. He doesn't need to let us be in relationship with him. And so David is pleading with God to give him that knowledge, to be so generous and so loving that he would allow David to know him, to be in relationship. He's saying, don't hide your face from me. Let me see you, God. Let me know you. And look at the beautiful, emotional, relational words of verse 10. Verse 10, he says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. This is amazing. Now, there was never a time that we see in Scripture where David's parents do this. There's never a time where David's father and mother forsake him. So it's it's almost certainly hypothetical what he's saying here. He's saying, even if my father and mother forsake me, God would take me in. But what he's saying is so clear to us, right? That there's an incredible intimacy, the deepest love and security that you should have should be with your parents. That, that they want to embrace you, they want to care for you. And yet in this life, even our parents can let us down. And David's saying, God's love is more secure than that. God's love will not fail, even when the two people on this earth who you should have security in don't give you security. Even if your parents disown you, God won't disown you. God's love is more secure. Isaiah 49, 15 says, can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God is saying even a nursing mother could theoretically abandon her child, could forget her child. God won't do that. God's love is more secure. Praise God for that. And look at the look at verses 11 to 12. So he sought the house of God and the face of God, and now he seeks the security of God. Verse 11 and 12. <clears throat> Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. So he needs God to teach him his way. Again, this term way speaks to a way of living, a path of life, a pattern of behavior. And we have similar language that we've seen in the, in the last two Psalms about God instructing us in his ways. He wants God to establish him on that level path so he can't slip and fall. He wants stability that is provided through God's guidance. And this will also give him security from his enemies. So he's praying and asking God, even as he seeks his face, he seeks relationship with him, he also wants to live in a way that will protect him from his enemies who seek to undermine him. And then the, the psalm ends with more declarations of confidence in God. Verses 13 to 14, confidence in God. Let me read these verses. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. What amazing confidence to end on. I love this. Because David is seeking God, he knows that someday he will see God fully. He longs for that day. There's hope for the one who seeks God, that God will answer, that God will respond and give to us what we are seeking for most desperately. And so he encourages the reader to wait for the Lord. That The psalm started with this 
twofold declaration of a questioning of whom shall I fear, right? Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? And here he ends by saying twice, wait for the Lord, wait for the Lord. This is his encouragement. And, and I think these, these two are connected, right? We tend to think of courage as being willingness to act, as being readiness to jump into the fray, to do something daring, to kind of show your courage through some act of bravado. But here, we're reminded that courage sometimes, very often, is about having the strength to wait on God, to live without the ability to resolve something, even though you may want to do that. You may want to act, but instead to do the right thing and to wait on God's timing, to be patient, to be trusting. That takes real strength. It takes real courage. And so he says, even if things aren't right right now, I'm going to wait on God. I'm going to let him be the one who resolves this problem because I can't do it. It's amazing the confidence that you can have when you understand what is most important, when you understand that one thing that matters the most above everything else. So seek after God today. In fact, I'll leave you with this encouragement, and what better encouragement from Deuteronomy 4.29. This is what God says or through, the, through the mouth of Moses. says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Let's seek after God today.